Father in heaven, we, uh, what we have just been singing and what we have just uh, declared to you with our voices, it's so rich. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond all time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now with manner intertwined, so serious and so full of joy. So would you help us to be seriously joyful and joyfully serious as we receive your word? Lord, even as, as, as we sing, here is love, and it's, it's that, that great hymn from 120 years ago, the Welsh Revival Church is all over, we're singing it. Lord, we, we pray that we would see the same thing in our own day. So help us as we come to here. Awaken our minds. Turn on the lights in our hearts so that we can receive your word with gladness and with thanksgiving. We're thankful for it. We're thankful we can gather. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Bo. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to give you a big welcome. It's a beautiful day outside. So uh, I'm glad you're here. Um, a couple of announcements, a couple of things I want you to be aware of this morning. Two of our newest ministry partners are here today. Luke and Jordan Brunhart, they minister to college students in Southern California. Luke, uh, he's lived all over the world, a uh, missionary family growing up. And, uh, and Jordan, she has some Golden Hills roots. So they're just outside, uh, just outside the lobby in the portico. I invite you to stop by and meet them today. Ask them about their ministry. Find out how you can pray for them. Uh, they're just, yeah, they're, just, they're a neat young couple. So yeah, I encourage you guys just to stop by and say hello. Something we mentioned this last week, uh, we're inviting you to join us at an interest meeting this afternoon for a, a new ministry called SENT, Serving and Engaging Neighbors Together. I love me some acronyms. So that's a good one. So the goal here is to glorify God by sending ambassadors of Christ into our communities to cultivate meaningful and lasting relationships as we proclaim the gospel in word and deed. That's going to be today at 2 o'clock in room 246 and 247, the double room upstairs. Finally, uh, we, for those of you who got here a little bit early, you saw us baptizing some people outside. Praise God for that. And we've got about four more people that we're going to baptize after the service today. So I invite you to stick around. Whereas we're, even as we're going to get into today's message, we're going to hear even how the act of baptism is something that we do communally. We do it as witnesses. And um, just in God's providence, for those who were baptized, uh, it's a pretty nice day today. A little different than what we had in November and January and March outside in the water. So good choice if you chose to be, a, you chose to be baptized on this day in May. It's gorgeous out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure the water feels nice. So I invite you to, to stick around for that. Um, yeah, this, this, today, this afternoon. But today we're going to be talking a little bit. We've, we've been working on this series, six-week series on payment for our union with Christ. It's part of our union with Christ series. As you can see uh, up there, the, uh, the text is Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, that is not a typo. It's not that we're lazy and just haven't updated it. That's our text for the whole six weeks. There's a point to that. So it's, it's so heavy and it's so thick, it takes us six weeks to chew on it and to digest it and to understand what's there for us. Uh, so that's, that's where we're going to be headed to today. But first, I, I got to tell you, um, it's, it's funny. I got some texts uh, yesterday. Uh, so I, I grew up in the South. Uh, I'm from Arkansas. Um, 
I'm happy about that. So, oh, okay, thank you guys. Oh, there, all right, there we go. Yeah, it's, I think those of us from Arkansas, I think we're the only people here without accents. So that's cool. But, um, so I got some, I got some text messages. So Arkansas has a college baseball team and, and uh, they played Friday night. They've been playing this weekend in, in Arkansas in the stadium. It was all over, uh, all over social media. There was a raccoon on the loose in the stadium. Um, now, to some of you, a raccoon running around is shocking. Uh, if you're from Arkansas, that's just Friday night. They're just, <laughs> raccoons are everywhere. So you do what you do. So one of the young fans, he picked it up and he took it and he was kind of parading. Crowd went nuts when he finally caught it. I mean, everybody in the whole state, forget the game. The bullpens, they were all watching to see what was happening with this raccoon. And so this young guy, he just caught it, carried it out like a trophy and took it. And the, the people, I mean, it's on film. He took, he took it outside. Uh, I heard the raccoon later bit him and he had to go to the ER for like a rabies shot and stuff. But hey, like I said, it's the Arkansas Friday night. So that's where I grew up, just to give you some context. And, and I grew up in a small town, um, about 3,000 people. And so anytime there was a large event in our town, we didn't have like a civic center or a big auditorium to do things. So our, our gathering place was the Walmart parking lot. That's where anything big went down. Like if there was anything that was ever going to happen, it happened right there on the bypass in the Walmart parking lot. So I'm a kid. I'm about seven or eight years old, maybe, maybe eight or nine. And uh, for some reason, it's all foggy in my memory, and, and you'll see why in a moment. But they, they brought in a big bale of hay, not a little square bale of hay, that, you know, put on your front porch for Thanksgiving or whatever to decorate. No, no. One of the big round bales of hay. You know what I'm talking about? So they brought it, they cut it open, they spread it out. And some guy, I remember kind of a short stocky guy with a white shirt and a short tie. Might have been the manager, don't know. But he took about $20 worth of coins and he just chucked it in the hay. And they stirred it all up. And we were about to have a good old fashioned hay scramble. So he stirred it all up, this big bale of hay, and there were just about 20 of us kids, and they're like, all right, go for it. So we all just dove neck deep in this hay in the summertime, trying to find coins. So I'm, I'm here, and I hear all these older kids saying, ah, I found a quarter. I'm up to $2. I'm at $3. And it felt like an hour of torture. It was probably about four minutes, but it felt like I was in there most of my life. And finally, they called time. And I came away with a nickel <laughs> and a rash. <laughs> and I'm thankful, like the saving grace in all this is that we only lived about two blocks from Walmart. So it was a short drive home to the shower. But I'll never forget what my dad said, long as I live. He told me, he said, son, I want you to remember this. You never get something for nothing. I'm like, all right, I got a nickel, but it cost me. That's our bent though. That's the way we are as people. We've got this assumption. You don't get something for nothing. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If it sounds too good to be true, what? Probably is, right? We don't believe things. We doubt things. That, yeah, we live in a very skeptical age. So tell me, how does that square with what we've been talking about these last few Sundays? We talk about God's electing love, the provenance, the source, the origin of our union with Christ. It's his electing love from eternity past that calls us to salvation. Then we talked about he's adopting us into his family and it's all to the praise of his glory. 
That sounds good. Really good. Too good, maybe. Are we getting something for nothing? Who's paying for all this? That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's turn once again to our text in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 for us. Actually, I'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So we start, this is, this is heavy, this is thick. It's why we're spending six weeks on it. There's a lot in there. And we're not going to try to do it all today. We're going to just focus on what we're going to focus on today. So there's all these spiritual blessings that Paul's talking about in, in verse 3. And he lays them out through the rest of those verses. Those blessings, they're wonderful. They're spiritual blessings. But yeah, they cost somebody something. You can probably figure out from the title of the sermon who paid for it all. So Christ purchased all these spiritual blessings on our behalf. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. Let's take a few minutes and let's look at some of these spiritual blessings. Let's look at how Christ obtained them for us, why that's good news, and how we should respond. Okay? Before we do this, the last thing I want us to do, the last thing I want us to do is to go verse by verse and, and point out, oh, here's a blessing, here's a blessing. Okay, here's a blessing. That's sort of a blessing. This is a blessing. And we make a list. And we print off this list like it's some kind of academic intellectual exercise. I don't want to do that here. I don't want us to lose the grandeur of all this. What we're going to look at is this, we say union with Christ. We're talking about this comprehensive state of spiritual blessedness that we have gladly received without doing anything to obtain it on our own merit. That's important. We need to grasp the heights of this. Some of these blessings, we already enjoy them. In verse 4, we're reading about how God the Father, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In verse 5, we see how the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. It's important. Sometimes when we read scripture and we read brothers, a lot of times the original language could mean brothers or sisters, or brothers and sisters. But when we read about adoption as sons, it means sons. What it doesn't mean is that this is not available to women. We're not excluding half of the population. 
what we're talking about is in their culture, being adopted into a family as a daughter means I just picked up a new housekeeper. I have a new servant, I have a new maid who doesn't have an inheritance for herself, who has nothing in her own name. But when I adopt someone as a son, they share, they have an inheritance, they have things that will belong to them. So brothers and sisters, together we are adopted as sons who have this glorious inheritance that we share in and that we partake in through Christ. So he adopted himself, he adopted us to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will. It was his own design. It wasn't because he knew how awesome we would be or how talented and how skillful we would be. Not because he knew what we would bring to the party. Because of his mercy. Because there wasn't a whole lot that was great about us, as we'll see. I don't know where the quote came from. It's funny with quotes because we never really know. There's a pretty popular thing that circulates on the internet and, it's, and it says, uh, and it says, it's a quote by Abraham Lincoln. And it says, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> from Abraham Lincoln talking about the internet. So sometimes we never know where these come from. But this quote is attributed to Jonathan Edwards, but really who knows? I know I didn't make it up. But it says, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. There was nothing beautiful about us, nothing wonderful, nothing that we had to offer. God's mercy. Some of these blessings, they're being kept for us. We're going to enjoy them for all of eternity. In verse 11, we read about this glorious inheritance that we have obtained. It's got our name on it, but it's being held for us. You parents with little kids, maybe even parents with older kids, and grandma and grandpa give them money for their birthday, why don't you let me hold that for you, Junior, so you don't lose it? Same idea. Holy Spirit is holding our inheritance for us. It's securely held and it's sealed because if we held it, if we could lose it, we would, and it wouldn't take long. But the Spirit is holding it as a guarantee until we come into possession of it in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so I want you to look. These things that we already have, and, and, and look at the uh, look at kind of the, how the triune God is at work here. There's God the Father, and He's a He's chose He has chosen us in Him before the foundations of the world. He has adopted us as sons, and we have this glorious inheritance that's awaiting for us. That's being kept by the Spirit until we come into possession of it. It's unwavering. It's secure. It's unshakable. And then we see Jesus. And Jesus has paid the price for all these things. He's paid the price for our union. And he's paid it in full. He's secured these spiritual blessings for us. He paid for it out of the abundant riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7, we just read it. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is what the work of Christ accomplished for us. What he paid, this is what we get. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. We used to belong to the world. We used to be bound by our sin. But through his work on the cross, Jesus redeemed us. He undid our bindings and he has bound us to himself. 
We once were slaves to sin, as we just sang. Jesus paid this ransom for us. We can't skip this part just because it's familiar. We can't skip it just because we talked about it, what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday. Let's don't forget for a second that the means by which God the Father lovingly lavished his grace upon us was through the death of his precious son, Jesus, for sinners like us. This redemption came through his blood. It's through his death. It wasn't that he was born in a manger and he lived life and he was a good example, so let's follow that example. No, it came through his blood. It came through his death. Let's back up just a little bit. In the time before Christ was born, all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, they appointed priests. And these priests would help the people with their sacrifices, lots of sacrifices, for different reasons. But there was a particular offering that people were supposed to make for their own sin. And so the priest would take the animal that the person had bought or raised and and brought with them. They would take it, they would kill the animal, they would sprinkle the blood on an altar or a holy place. This didn't forgive the people's sin for all time. It didn't wipe it away. A lot of us, you know, some of us have mortgages, all of us have credit cards. And imagine just paying the interest you never pay down the principal, right? Man, you're never going to get that credit card paid off. You're just kicking the can down the road. You're just paying the interest, and your principal never gets paid down. All you're trying to do is keep the creditors at bay. All you're trying to do is keep your house from getting foreclosed. This principal, it never went away. But the people, they waited, and they hoped, because this was just a shadow of what was going to come. And then Jesus, he enters the scene. The high priest, they used to take the sacrifice, but the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the perfect high priest. He's the true and better high priest for us. And the priest, they used to take the animal, the sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the true and better sacrifice for us. By his blood, he sets us free from this curse of sin. And Hebrews chapter nine talks about it. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This system they had where they had to bring these animals regularly, year after year after year, just kicking the can down the road, just paying off the interest. Finally, and forever, once for all, redeemed by Jesus himself, who through his own blood paid everything for all time. Brothers and sisters, we could not have done this on our own. We could not have paid, I couldn't, not only the sins of the world, I couldn't pay what I owed. But because of Jesus, there's nothing left to pay. It's nothing, there's nothing we can add. It's not like we're going out to lunch with Jesus and he's going to get the check and it's like, oh, okay, I'll get the tip. No, he paid everything. What can we add to that? He redeemed us. He set us free. We don't belong to the world anymore. We're not bound to that. We're bound to him. We belong to him. There'd be people 
We just thought a few minutes ago, if you got here early, and, you, and I hope everybody sticks around and you see it afterwards, but there are going to be people being baptized out there today on the plaza. And they are boldly and they are publicly declaring that they no longer belong to the world, but they belong to Christ. Yeah, praise God for that. They, they, they are declaring in front of all of us, with all of us as, as witnesses, that they are now a people for Christ's own possession. There's a reason that we all gather as witnesses. There's a reason that we all gather to see it. It's because this belonging to Christ, it's not a private thing. What Christ has done for us, he's done it for others. When we talk about the blessedness of being united with Christ because of the great riches of God's grace, we're not talking about, it's not, it's not a table for two with you and Jesus. It's a banquet. It's a family affair. We're all there. We rejoice in it together. We celebrate together. That's good news. That's how it works. Two reasons is good news. First of all, it's good news for the world. So some of us have been walking with Jesus for a long time now. Some of us here today have been walking with, the, walking with the Lord 50, 60, 70 years. Praise God for that. Lifetime of faithfulness. Some of us, maybe not so long. But there may be some people here today who are just trying to figure out what this whole thing's about. Somebody asked you to come? Got plans for lunch later? Well, if that's you, then I am really glad you're here because I have some good news to share with you. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, I've got a good reminder for you about what we used to be like before we were united with Christ and before we uh, belonged to him, back when we belonged to the world. Sometimes we think, yep, we're pretty good people. Mostly. That's what we thought. We're pretty good. At worst, we're kind of morally neutral. Not as good as we could be. Definitely not as bad as we could be. But let's see if that's the case. Continuing on in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes to them in chapter 2. And you were dead. That does not say, and you were decent. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was you in your natural state. You were children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's look at the language here. We weren't morally good people. We weren't morally neutral people. We were dead people, spiritually speaking. We were walking around bound by our own sins. We were children of disobedience. We were objects of wrath. We were enemies of God. We were just out there living our best lives, enjoying our own authentic selves to the best that we knew how. We were blind and we didn't know it. But hey, at least we figured it out. 
at least we came up with some good ideas and made some good choices and snapped ourselves out of our own deadness and found Jesus, right? No. Dead people don't make good choices. <laughs> Dead people don't know how to find anything. Dead people, they, they don't know their left from their right. It was because of God and the richness of his mercy, because of his love, he made us alive together with Christ. We didn't flip the switch on, he did. He raised us and he seated us with Christ and we will see the immeasurable riches, like it says here, we will see the immeasurable riches of his grace for all of eternity. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love the way he puts this. I agree with it completely. He says, I believe that our eternity will be spent in that way. That's heaven, it seems to me. The glory of eternity will be our discoveries of fresh aspects of these riches and the entering into further wonderful appreciations of the glory of God's grace. You, 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 get, the, you get the sense that like it's at some point in the new heavens and the new earth when we're there for eternity, I, I, you know, I, I don't know everything that's gonna go on, but I get the sense that, that there's gonna be a tour and the tour is gonna take us on a tour of God's immeasurable riches that were poured out through us in, in, in Christ. And I wanna sign up for that one. And I'm imagining it's like, I think about like a big building. I think about the Pentagon, right? Big five-sided building, huge walls high. And I imagine the tour starting out and on the side of this building, it says the immeasurable riches of his grace. And so we're just walking along at the bottom of this building thinking that's the biggest thing I've ever seen. And we're walking and we're walking and throughout eternity, we're seeing there was so much grace that was poured out for us. And we think that we're coming to the end and then we turn we're like, nope, just another wall. There's more. And there's another wall after that and another wall after that. For all of eternity, we're gonna keep seeing these immeasurable riches just displayed to us. Our, our current brains would explode. But in this new creation, I think we're finally gonna be ready to see it. Man, that's gonna be something. I can't wait. Everything, all this, it was his doing, it was his idea. His gift, his grace, he granted to us the faith that we would need to believe it. We didn't come up with that on our own. It's nothing that we did. Nothing we can boast about. That's the hope for the world. Let's, let's be honest. The world is kind of a rough place. I don't know if you've been out there lately. Imagine how bad you think the world is. Okay? All right. It's worse. It's full of hate, full of malice, greed, anger, jealousy. Saw the news this morning, senseless. At least 10 people died in Buffalo. Guy decided to go in and just start shooting people. Had hate in his heart for people who weren't like him. That's what the world's like. It's always been that way though. What do we expect? It's a bunch of spiritually dead people. It's a bunch of people who are, by their nature, objects of wrath. They're walking around, bumping into each other. It's a world that's hostile to Christ. Let's look at what Jesus himself says about the world in the Gospel of John. When he's with his disciples, Jesus, in John chapter 7, verse 7, he tells them, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Because he's honest with the world. 
Sometimes we'll see nice things come on, good statements that say something like, you know, Christians, if, if, we were, if we were more like Jesus, then the world would love us more because people love Jesus, but they hate the church. That is false. The more we are like Christ, the more honest we are with the condition of the world, the more the world will hate us. Not because we're jerks. Not because we're narrow-minded bigots who insist on our own way but because we tell the world the truth about who Jesus is. Same way that Jesus did. With love and with grace and with compassion and with mercy, but always truthful. Jesus did that. He said the world hated him for it. Told his disciples, if the world hated you, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The way that Jesus talks about the world, it's a place that hates him. Hates him, hates those who follow him because they, we belong to him. For those who are about to be baptized today, about to make that public confession, that declaration that they no longer belong to the world, but they belong to Christ, they will be hated because of that. That's not a first century thing. That's normal. It's to be expected. Jesus is again gathered with his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. He's talking to them about how he's gonna die, but then he will come back to them. Let's see what he says about that. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them in John 16, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. When you don't see me anymore, you will weep and you will lament but the world will rejoice. They'll be glad I'm gone. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus tells them, behold, the hour is coming and indeed it has come when you'll be scattered each to his own home and you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He says that when he's gone from them, they'll grieve, but the world will rejoice. He tells them they'll be scattered and they'll be weak and they'll have trouble, but he's encouraging them. He's overcome it. When Jesus describes the world, he describes it as this awful, hostile place. It's treacherous. It's dangerous. To Jesus in John's gospel, world means people who hate him. They can't wait for him to be gone. So how much more remarkable when we read these words that we just heard about Jesus and the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world through him might be saved. It's not because it was a wonderful place full of wonderful people who just can't wait to save those folks and have them here on our side, finally get them on our team. No, it was out of the riches of his grace and mercy that the father sent the son to give his life so that people who are hostile to him might believe and be united with Christ for all time. Remember what Courtney read this morning from Romans 5. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Not after we were sinners, while we were still sinners. Nothing good, nothing lovely about us. 
but he died for us and he gave us right standing before God. We're no longer his enemies. He made peace. He did away with the hostility. We've been reconciled to him. That's the best news we can offer the world. If you're hearing this for the first time today, if you're understanding this for the first time today, that's good. That's a good thing. Later on, let's talk. It's good news for the world. It's good news for the church too, though. Our spiritual blessings are secure. They're obtained by this finished work of Christ alone. And there's nothing that we can add. This should humble us. There's nothing that we can do. Remember what I said? The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. There's a corollary to that. Um, I mentioned growing up in Arkansas and uh, it's different than California in a lot of ways. But one in particular is that we don't have to have license plates on the front and the back. So that sets us free to have whatever we want on that front license plate. Um, It's fun. You get all sorts of things. And uh, one of the most common, and I think here it's bumper stickers, but one of the most common, and you'll find it in most church parking lots. And if you, if you have that here, um, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. If this is your bumper sticker, don't take it personally. But uh, Jesus is my co-pilot. Man, I saw a lot of those growing up. Jesus is my co-pilot. Listen, folks, Jesus isn't your co-pilot. You don't help in this thing the way you think you do. Jesus found you lifeless in the backseat of your car. He got behind the wheel and he's driving you to glory. So just be thankful and take the sticker off your car. Um, But let's don't think for a minute that the gospel, the work of Christ, let's, let's don't think of it in the past tense. It's something that we once believed and now the gospel's all over with because we believe it. And now let's move on to deeper things. Really? We're talking about the riches of God's grace on display through the work of Christ kept for us by the spirit of God. And you wanna find something deeper to talk about? There's nothing deeper. Yeah, the gospel has implications for us as individuals. It removes the penalty for our sin that we can have, we could be justified and we can stand holy and blameless before a holy and blameless God and not be instantly incinerated. Yeah, praise God for that. It's got individual implications, does the gospel. It also has collective implications. We can be reconciled to one another. We can live in true unity as the people of God. So, in, in when we, we've been here about a year and a half, and so trying to describe, I may have shared this, I don't know, but it's funny, I'll share it again. So, trying to describe, somebody asked me, what, hey, what's, so what's the area like? Like, you know, Brentwood, Antioch, Oakley, what's it like? I said, what's pretty interesting? I said, there's, these, there's like two distinct groups of people. There's, you know, kind of the beautiful farm country just to the east of us, and it, it really comes up right to where we live, like just a few streets over from my house. Hey, there's farms. I said, at the same time, there's like the expanding Bay Area with all sorts of technology and industry that's also heading this way. And it's like the two meet. And I said, the best way I know how to put it is we have a tractor supply company on Brentwood Boulevard with a parking spot where you can charge your Tesla. <laughs> it's like the two meet and it's beautiful and it works. And even when I talk about that, some of you are like, I'm in the first crowd. And some of you are like, I'm in the second crowd. 
But this, implica- this collective implication of the gospel, the good news for us is that we can be united into one body, enjoying our union with Christ together. Doesn't matter where we came from, doesn't matter what we look like, old, young, we can be united. It's this collective implication. There's also cosmic implications. The whole of creation, it feels the effects of sin. God created everything and after he created it all, he looked at everything that he made and he said it was very good. He was pleased with what he had done. And then sin entered and the natural order of the world, it became corrupted and the world grew sick. But in Jesus, God is reconciling and restoring all things to himself by the blood of his cross. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus is undoing everything that sin did. He is righting all the wrongs. And we will see that come to fruition, finally be completed when we see the new heavens and the new earth. And this church, this is where we get to help. The good works that we do are not to pay part of our own salvation. It's to see where God is at work and do good works in his name as he restores everything that has been created and ruined. Part of the every spiritual blessings that we're talking about, we see in chapter one of Ephesians verses eight and nine, we're talking about wisdom and discernment that we might know the mystery of his will. We can know where God is working and we can work for his good purposes to the praise of his glory, not to earn anything from him, just out of gratitude. We don't do it that we might be saved. We do it because we are. We now belong to Christ. We know what our master is doing and we're invited to join in the work. He gets the glory, we get the joy. And knowing this, brothers and sisters, it sets us free from two very dangerous situations. Two things to avoid. The first of these is legalism. I'm not, I'm not primarily talking about the kind of legalism that presents itself as like social expectations within the church. There are churches where if somebody who's here who's doing what I'm doing today wasn't wearing a suit and a tie, that would be sinful. And even if I was wearing a suit and tie, but this color wasn't dark enough on the suit, and you think I'm kidding, where if the sisters who came in, if the skirt wasn't long enough, that'd be sinful. And God help you if you get home and your kids listen to Taylor Swift. I'm not talking about that kind of legalism. These are yokes that we put on one another's shoulders. But they are symptoms of a bigger disease. These yokes, these unnecessary burdens that we put on one another, the source comes in the fact that we've got these unnecessary burdens that we put on ourselves because we don't fully trust in the work of Christ. We think that we got to pick up our end of the deal in our own redemption. Sometimes we do this by thinking that our union with Christ, this blessed Christian life that we walk, we think it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus my hard work will save me. Jesus plus my morality will save me. Jesus plus my whatever will save me. No, Jesus alone will save you. Anything else, it just brings the same result when we try to say Jesus plus anything else. It just brings us to frustration and failure. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about that in Romans 7. Paul writes, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, 
sold under sin, for I don't understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who, who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. It's a long passage, but did you catch that? Paul, none other than the apostle Paul could not figure this out. He couldn't do this. He says he was stuck. And we're stuck. We all know what the law of God says. We know what he tells us to do in his word. We know what it means to be obedient. We know what it means to be righteous and holy. Paul agrees with it. He wants to do all the good things. He wants to obey God's law. Constantly, he's coming up short. The good things that he knows he should do and the things he wants to do, he just can't bring himself to do them. Even more, the bad things the scripture warns us about. The things he knows he's never supposed to do. That's what he can't stay away from. He's stuck. It's like there's two of them. It's like there's a bad Paul walking in his own flesh and in his own power and there's a good Paul who walks in the spirit and wants to be righteous and they're always fighting and the good Paul loses to the bad Paul a lot. Good Paul wants to be set free from bad Paul. Good Bo wants to be set free from bad Bo. What frees us? Our effort? Oh, Jesus. He's the only one that can set us free from that. I will never forget when I was a kid. I was probably fourth grade. For all I know, this might have been the morning after the hay scramble. Um, I'm in church and I'm in the pew. I'm, I'm fourth grade, I think. And the preacher, I I remember it like it was this morning. He said, you know, all it takes is one sin to keep you out of heaven. And I'm a fourth grader. I'm nine and I'm terrified. How can I ever do this? How can I ever keep myself pure? I carried that with me. I took it to high school with me. One sin will keep me out of heaven. Just takes one sin. Might as well make it a good one. (laughs) It's just God's mercy that I still have this union with Christ today. Terrifying. Walking down this road of legalism, trying to be perfect on your own, never ends well. We just end up being captive all over again. Pastor Philly talked last week about this universal thing where all people, they just want their freedom. I just want to be free. He's right, especially in our culture. I just want to be free. That's a universal. And there's another universal. I just don't want to owe anybody anything. 
If I can just be square with everybody, that's good. So what I'm gonna do, I know Jesus did a whole lot for me, but I'm gonna pay him back. And I might have to do it in installments. He might have to put me on the installment plan, but I'm, I'm gonna pay him back for that because that was a lot what he did. But it, it, we just can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Puts us right back into those chains of bondage. That's that dangerous error of legalism. But there's a second one we need to avoid and that's antinomianism. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Another way of saying it's cheap grace. It's this idea that, uh, okay, Jesus has, he has done for me what I can't do for myself and he will keep doing for me what I can't do for myself. He has forgiven my sin and I know he'll keep forgiving my sin because he'll keep showing mercy. So I'm just, just gonna soak that up and I'm just gonna keep on doing what I want because I know that he'll keep forgiving me for that. So this side, we think we can do it with our effort and our own righteousness and our own good works. And this side over here says, ah, I'm good. I'm just gonna rest on that for a while. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans 6, the chapter before. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We weren't rescued by Jesus from the clutches of sin just so that we could keep on sinning and continue in our old ways. I'm gonna say this too. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to put yourself in that place. So let's just say it's somebody you know. So whether it's you or somebody you know, might say, uh, well, about 20 years ago, I walked down an aisle at a church and somebody told me that if I just repeated after them and I prayed this thing they told me to pray, that I would be good and really wouldn't have to worry about anything anymore. All I would have to do is repeat after them. So we, we have a thing on staff. We, some in, we've talked about here, words matter. Even more specifically, prepositions matter. And so I'm telling you, if you haven't died to sin, then you are still dead in sin. We were redeemed to walk in a new life. We weren't set free from the clutches of our sin just to float around like a feather on a breeze. He undid our bindings from our wickedness and he bound us to himself. We're slaves of righteousness now. Jesus tells a story about a path and I think it's a good way of understanding these two errors that we need to stay away from. When he talks about this path and you guys probably know the story, he talks about uh, there's two ways. There's one that leads to life and there's one that leads to destruction. And the one that leads to life, it's this, it's this narrow gate and that gate opens up and we walk through it and then it's kind of a narrow path that leads to life. And he says, not many people are gonna find it. But then he talks about this other gate that leads to destruction and that's a big wide gate. And that gate opens up and when it opens up, it's a wide smooth path. that's just downhill and easy to walk. And there's gonna be a lot of people that find that. But here's where we get it messed up, church. This is where we get it wrong. On this error of legalism, this side of legalism, we think that, we don't think the gate comes first. 
We think that we start out walking this winding, treacherous mountain path with huge cliffs on each side. And it's dark and we don't have a flashlight. And you better not fall. And if you make it the whole way, your whole life, at the end, there's a little gate. And if you were good enough, you might be able to squeeze through. That's wrong. This side over here, we think that, yeah, it's a narrow gate to get in. But once we believe, once we've, we've received God's grace, then, hey, it's just a wide open, smooth, downhill coast to glory. And that's not it either. But God, in his great mercy, he opens the door through the work of Christ. We are led through by the Spirit. We walk every day on this narrow path by the mercies of God, guided by his Spirit, enjoying every spiritual blessing, all paid for by the work of Christ on the cross until we reach the end. And when we reach the end, we receive that inheritance that has been held for us. And that's it. That's the walk. That's the path. That's union with Christ. That's the blessed life. It's one of complete and utter dependence on God who shows mercy. Knowing that, how should we walk? How should we live? Four ways. First thing we do is we walk in gratitude, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. A right response to what Christ has done how should we respond to that? We should respond to that with a grateful heart, full of joy. As Russell Moore puts it, in light of what we're talking about with Ephesians 2 and how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. Russell Moore says, eat, drink, and be merry. For yesterday you were dead. But today we're alive. Let's find joy in that. Sinless joys that we might walk in. Colossians chapter two, Paul says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here we are, we're walking, we're, we're, it switches to a plant metaphor and we're digging roots down in this good soil of our union with Christ and we're growing and we do what all good, strong plants do and we bear fruit. We abound in this grateful fruit. And what's the fruit like? You know this, the fruit of the spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So as we walk in him, we walk with gratitude, not trying to earn anything, just thankful. And this is what it looks like. Second way we walk is we display humble wisdom. I'm not talking about being smart. I'm not talking about being intellectual. I'm not talking about trying to lord things over people because there has to be a humility in our wisdom. Paul's still writing to the Ephesians in chapter four and he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was in chains when he wrote this letter, by the way. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We walk in a manner worthy of this calling, this calling to adoption as sons with an inheritance. 
not trying to earn it, not trying to pay it back. It's walking with humility and with gentleness and patience and it's maintaining this unity in the spirit. And the wisdom that we display should match that. We see it in James chapter three. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, it's first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial, it's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the fruit that we bear because of God's riches poured out through Christ as we're walking and guided by the Spirit. We bear these fruits of patience, of love, of gentleness, of joy, impartiality. And we reap a harvest of righteousness. Third thing we do is that we do good works. We don't do good works to earn our salvation. We don't do good works to repay Jesus. We do good works because we see how our Lord is at work in the world. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You ever been to Home Depot on a Saturday morning? It's pre-pandemic, I guess. But um, it's where all the good dads take their kids. So uh, they'll sell those little kits, right? You build a birdhouse in the bag. You know what I mean? You get the birdhouse or you, you know, a little Pinewood Derby race car or whatever with the wheels and all the stuff you need to make, it's there. They make it, they make it, it's good. It's a good time to, you know, spend time with your kids building something. But they just give you this kit, like, here you go. Here's how you build your birdhouse. And I kind of feel like that's sort of what God does with these good works he's prepared for us. Like he's the dad and he knows that we can't do what he does. You know, we're not ready for the power saw, but he's like, here, here's something you can do. There's all these ways that I'm at work and here, I want you to participate. I've prepared this for you. So here, take it. That's, I think it's what he does. It's, it's, he, he, gives, he gives it to us based on how he's made us because we are his workmanship. He built us. He knows our frame as we read in Psalm 103. So he knows what we're like. He knows knows how he's gifted us, the passions that he's put in us to use for his good pleasure. So it gives us these good works that we would do them. We'd walk in them. And when we do that in obedience and gratitude, it brings him glory. The fourth way is that we encourage one another in community. Hearkening back a bit to the language of Jesus as our high priest and also our sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 19, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So because of what Christ has done, we can be confident, we can hold fast to our confession that we belong no longer to the world, but that we belong to him. We see this hope that is there and that is real that we will receive, that we will receive because the one who promised is faithful. So as we walk this path, as we walk this narrow road by the help of the spirit, we don't walk it in isolation. We got fellow travelers all around us. God's mercy that he gives us traveling buddies as we walk down some tough roads. Because Jesus has made our hearts clean by his own blood, we look for ways to stir one another up. Not to controversy. Not that kind of stirring up. We're good at that. But we stir one another up to love and to good works. And we do this all the more the longer we're on this path and we see the day of our final inheritance drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say? You make our hearts glad. We're grateful that we belong to you. Thankful that you called us out of the world and you adopted us as your own. Not because of anything we, not because of anything we would have done. Nothing good or beautiful about us, but just because of your mercy. We can never repay what Jesus did for us by his blood. We're left with just saying thank you. So would you help us to live with gratitude? Would you help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Would you help us to walk in the spirit and to stir one another up to love and good works, these works that you've already prepared for us to do? And for those of us who've benefited from the riches of your grace towards us, we long for the day when we see the whole picture, your unfolding immeasurable riches laid out before our eyes. We praise you, Lord. We thank you and we love you and we pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.